All right, well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We're looking at verses 30 and 31 this morning. It's an exciting day today uh, as we prepare to celebrate the Lord and those who profess their faith publicly through baptism. And what a wonderful text that we come to today to prepare our hearts for that. We're continuing our study through the book of Hebrews, so go ahead and stand. Hebrews 11, verses 30 and 31. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Let's pray. Father, your grace is amazing. There's no one in this room who is worthy of your grace. And so we praise you for reminders like we have today in this text, reminders through baptism, Lord, that you are a merciful and gracious God. We pray that you'd help us through this time, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, here are two more examples of faith that the writer of Hebrews sets before us. And both of these examples, Joshua and Rahab, they come from the same account in the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. As we look at these two verses today, I want us to consider some truths that we see concerning faith. Four things we can learn about faith from these verses. The first is this. Faith conquers cities. Faith conquers cities. That's the story of Joshua. By faith, verse 30, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Days. Now, the story of Jericho comes from the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. At that point in the story of uh, redemptive history, Moses has died. Joshua has taken his place as the leader of the people of Israel, and they have come at this point past the Jordan River. They have just crossed through the Jordan, where the Lord again parted the waters and they walked through on dry ground. And here they stand before Jericho. Jericho was a fortified city, something that most of the Israelites had never seen. That means that it was surrounded by a high wall all around the city. In fact, Deuteronomy 1 verse 28 describes it as, a fort, as fortified to the heavens. And so here before them is this seemingly impenetrable city, or at least wall. And so what could they do? What could Israel do as God brings them this far and they stand before this city of Jericho and the wall that separates them from the city? Let me say here, as we consider faith that conquers cities, God is... God. He reigns. He rules over all things. He does whatever He wishes. I hope you know that. God does whatever 
he wishes. His purposes will never fail. And he graciously uses individuals and churches as broken as we may be to bring about his sovereign purposes. And that is an amazing and humbling thing. And so consider here Joshua and the Israelites. We learn in Joshua 5 that Joshua goes to examine the situation. We'll we'll talk about in a few moments that he's already sent spies into the city who have returned. But he goes to examine the situation before them. And it says in Joshua 5, verse 13, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in hand. Joshua sees something far greater than the city's walls. There stands a warrior with his sword drawn. But Joshua is courageous in this moment. I, I I don't know what I would have done, but Joshua doesn't flee. In fact, it says he asks a question. Joshua asks this of this warrior. Are you for us or for our adversaries? In other words, whose side are you on? And the answer given to him in Joshua 5.14 from this warrior with the sword drawn is this. No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. What an amazing response. Are you, are you for us? Are you for our adversaries? No. God is God, and He does whatever He wishes. Many believe, I agree, that this was a theophany. It was an appearance of the Lord in the form of an angelic messenger. And a couple reasons for this. Joshua's response is he falls down and worships. And then is told by this warrior, commander of the Lord's army, to remove his sandals because the place is holy. And then a few verses later in Joshua 6, verses 2 through 5, as the scene continues, the commander is referred to as the Lord. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. And what is the message? What is the message from the commander of the Lord's army? God will fight for Joshua and for the Israelites. What a hope-filled visitation. Here stands Joshua between what appears to be an impenetrable wall, and here's this man with this message, the Lord will fight for you. As we look in Hebrews 11, the writer simply says this, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down. In other words, the walls fell because of the faith of Joshua and his people. But the focus of the faith is God. The centerpiece of the narrative in Joshua is not Jericho, and it's not the person Joshua. It's the Ark of the Covenant. 
which represented God's presence. In fact, the text mentions the ark no less than 11 times. The focus is the ark. The focus is God. God is the one who is doing here. The ark, as we look at the story that we'll read in just a moment, what we find is the ark is placed in the exact middle of the procession of the people. The priests are blasting their horns occasionally to herald God's presence. It was God's presence that circled Jericho those seven days, and it was His presence that would bring its fall. Faith conquers cities, but it is faith that is focused in God. Now, here is an accusation that comes from some as they read this text in Joshua. How could God command Israel to kill everyone in Jericho? There are critics who think that God was cruel or that Joshua just misunderstood or was mistaken. That God would, would order the death of everyone in Canaan. But here, here's the truth of, of the Scriptures here. God had given the Canaanites 400 years to, as, as the Lord says, fill up the measure of their sin. Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 16. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." In other words, as we fast forward to Joshua chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, they had 40 years, those living in Jericho, 40 years they had heard how God delivered Israel from Egypt through the Red Sea. For several years they had heard how God had defeated the Amorite kings. Sihon and Og on the other side of the Jordan. For seven days, they watched Israel march around their city. But they never repented. They never turned to the Lord. Faith conquers cities. Is it, the story of Joshua is a, is a great and awesome story. But for you and me individually, there is, it's relevant for us. Jesus said that if we have faith, the faith of a mustard seed, we can say to this mountain, move, and it will move. Now, there's a point to that. Jesus isn't saying that because he wants us going around trying to make adjustments to his creation. Right? I... I I can say with utmost confidence, the Lord's desire is not for you to move Mount Rainier. He's he's thrilled with where he put it. But, But the point of what Jesus is saying there is a mustard seed is really small. 
And even a small amount of faith in a huge God can conquer great things in your life. Faith conquers cities. Second thing that we learn here is that faith cleanses sinners. Faith conquers cities and it cleanses sinners. Verse 31 in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Within this verse is the hope of the gospel message. Grace upon grace upon grace. In that city of Jericho, behind those great walls, in the midst of this wicked city, was a woman. From a Jewish perspective, Rahab had three strikes against her. She was a woman, she was a Gentile, and she was a prostitute. And yet, as we see in Hebrews 11, this, this chapter in the Bible that we, we refer to as the Hall of Faith, except for Sarah, she's the only woman mentioned by name. God saw fit to save this Gentile woman because he's gracious, because he's merciful. Joshua 2 tells us the story of Rahab. Joshua had sent spies into Jericho to bring back a report about the city. Joshua 2 verse 1 says this, Go view the land, especially Jericho. The spies went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there, it says. And Rahab gives a friendly welcome to the spies. That's how the writer of Hebrews writes it. Now, the question honestly may come to our minds, why did the spies go to the house of a prostitute? The text doesn't give us details there, but we can, we can assume that this was not for sin, but rather a good place to hide out and likely a place that would be open at night. And Rahab hides the men and sends the king's servants away, allowing the two spies to escape and return to Joshua. And yet before she sends them, before she hides them, she says something wonderful. If you want to turn there, Joshua chapter 2 is the account. Joshua chapter 2, beginning with verse 8. She brings the men up to the roof to hide them with stalks of flax. And in verse 8, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord, Yahweh, has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the, king, to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. 
And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Wonderful. In the midst of this evil city, in the heart of a prostitute, God was mercifully working. Faith cleanses sinners. Rahab believed the God of Israel was the one true God. She welcomed his people and identified with them for the rest of her life, we find. She was willing to disassociate with the world, leaving friends in the city that she knew, and dwell with Israel for the rest of her days. We can confidently say here from Joshua 2, she doesn't know much theology. But she had enough faith in the one true God to save her. And her life of sin did not disqualify her from salvation. It was nothing that she did to earn this. It was God's mercy. Which brings us again to the focus of our faith. It is God. God graciously and mercifully saves sinners who come to Him and believe in Him and identify with Him. That's the joy of seeing baptisms. Because we know the Lord is merciful to those who identify with Him. He's merciful. Faith conquers cities and faith cleanses sinners. And third, faith has a face. Faith has a face. In both Hebrews 11.30 and 31, there are acts of obedience that reflect the faith that is heralded. Faith is not faith, faceless. It looks like something. It does something. The Lord had given very specific instructions to Joshua. In Joshua chapter 6, beginning with verse 2, the Lord speaking to Joshua, the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up everyone straight before him. So... Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests 
bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns, before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. Very specific instructions. There's a specific order by which they march, specific number of times they're to march around the city. The whole thing is, is nothing less than miraculous. The people had to depend completely on the Lord for victory. Because who would have thought of this kind of strategy? Or can we even call it a strategy? During the first six days, they're to march once around the walls each day, completely silent. While the priest blared intermittently on their horns. On the seventh day, they're to maintain silence as they circle the walls seven times until Joshua gave the command to shout, and then they're to shout. But here's the thing the evidence that they believed and that they had faith was that they did what was commanded. As ridiculous as it might have seemed to any person experienced in war, this is not how you win battles. They did it because they depended on God to save them. That's the gospel. Faith? Faith is going to get you to heaven? You've got to do something. You've got to act the right way. You've got to have enough good deeds to outweigh your bad deeds. No. God says just believe. And to the world, that may seem like a really terrible strategy. But God says just believe, have faith. The same is true of, of Rahab. In verse 31, she's contrasted with those who were disobedient. You have Rahab. And you have those who were disobedient. The people of Jericho had heard about Yahweh. But they didn't turn to him for help as Rahab did. She believed. And so she did as the followers of God told her to do. First, she welcomed them. That's her first act of faith. And then she had to gather her family in her house. She had to hang the scarlet cord from a window. She had to keep it to herself. She couldn't tell anyone about the spies or their plan. And she did it. She trusted the spies and she believed God. Faith has a face. James says that faith without works is dead. And he mentions two examples. Abraham and Rahab the prostitute. James 2, verses 21 through 26, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was called a friend of God. 
You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. For each of the examples in Hebrews 11, faith did something. It had a face. It was an inward reality that worked itself out with actions, with obedience. Faith has a face. Faith conquers cities. Faith cleanses sinners. Faith has a face. And lastly, faith has faults. Faith has faults. Here is the reality. Faith is messy. Faith is messy. If we say that faith has a face, we might, we might say that it doesn't wear makeup. Its blemishes show. Remember that God is the worker in this story. God is the conqueror. God is the one who cleanses. And He cleanses because we need cleansing. Faith, James 2 says, is counted as righteousness. Because God knows that He is righteous and we need righteousness. And we are incapable of fulfilling that need in ourselves. And so He grants it. He gives it. He counts us as righteous by faith. Faith is messy. It has faults. Does it strike you that one of the acts of faith that Rahab does is lying She lies to those the king sends to her. Now, this is a little bit uncomfortable. If you are used to making the people in the Bible the heroes, this is going to be hard. God is the hero in all of these stories. But it tells us in Joshua 2, verses 4 and 5, Rahab responds to the men the king sends. The king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me. But I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. That's not true. I do not know where the men went. Yes, she does. Now, this this is hard because I need for you to hear the point I'm trying to make here. I believe that was sin. 
because it was a lie. She was doing it in faith to protect God's servants, even to honor God. But it isn't okay to lie. Lying is sin. There are some who who see circumstances like this, whether it's with uh, Abraham or Isaac or here with Rahab, and they would say that there are such things as, as righteous lies or virtuous lies, that it's the right thing to do in some circumstances like this to lie. It's okay to lie in certain circumstances. A modern example of that might be if, if someone came to your house and had a weapon and demanded to know where your kids were. If that happened to me, I could tell you what I would do. I would lie to them. But I'm, I'm telling you that right now knowing that would be a sin because it's a lie. But I don't want them to know. And so I would lie to them. God is the ultimate truth, and He cannot lie. And He commands us not to lie. And I agree with Calvin here, which I feel like is a safe thing to do most of the time. He says this concerning this specific circumstance. As to the falsehood, as to the lie that Rahab tells, we must admit that though it was done for a good purpose, it was not free from fault. For those who hold what is called a dutiful lie to be altogether excusable do not sufficiently consider how precious truth is in the sight of God. Therefore, although our purpose be to assist our brethren to consult for their safety and relieve them, it never can be lawful to lie because that cannot be right which is contrary to the nature of God. And God is truth. On the whole, it was the will of God that the spies should be delivered, but He did not approve of saving their lives by falsehood. Now, you might propose this question. What other way would there have been? And I want to offer you this answer. I don't know. I don't know. I have nothing to give you there. I just know that God tells us that lying is a sin, and God uses broken people to bring about beautiful stories. Rahab is a sinful person. I am a sinful person, and God alone is gracious. He is merciful. He is kind. The point is this. Rahab was not sinless. She wasn't perfect. She was, however, a woman who had come to believe in the God who created all things. And as hard as it is for us to understand, her lie was an act of faith. She wasn't a woman who knew God's law, but she believed in Him, and she sought to please Him. Kent Hughes says this, often real faith is salted with sin, and God finds faith where we do not and often cannot see it. 
because he's gracious. I want to caution, I want to caution myself here. I want to caution all of us here. If there's a tension in you over that, that's okay, but we don't want to be at a place where we, where we unintentionally begin to make people the righteous ones and the heroes. We are sinful in all that we're doing. So often when we're even thinking godly things, we're thinking it with pride, with arrogance. How often have we read about the Israelites and said, I wouldn't have done that. That's wrong. Yes, that's true. It's wrong. But we dare not say, I would not have done that. We're broken. We're sinful. Faith has faults. This is a reminder of the grace and mercy of our Lord. Just as Rahab had given a friendly welcome to the spies, our Lord, who is righteous and holy and set apart in all of His ways, gives a friendly welcome to all who come to Him in faith, no matter what they've done. I think oftentimes we look at a a character in the Bible like Rahab, and we are tempted to think, this way. Well, if the Lord would welcome and save Rahab, then He can welcome and save you. But, but really, we ought to be thinking, if the Lord will welcome and save me, then He can welcome and save anyone. Because I'm as guilty as anyone has ever been. And yet the Lord is gracious. The Lord is merciful. Faith conquers cities and faith cleanses sinners. Faith has a face and faith faith has faults. Let me say a few things as we consider that together. First, where does it come from? Where does faith come from? Paul tells us in Romans 10 in a few different ways. Romans 10, 17, he says this, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing and receiving the Word of the Lord. Joshua heard the Word of the Lord and he believed it. God gives faith through the Word coming to a person and being received. But it also tells us it's a gift from Him. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, Paul says it's a gift that he apportions faith. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says it's a gift from God. As we consider this, there's there's this unity in the work of faith and in these circumstances that we see here. We might might think in in verses 30 and 31 of Hebrews 11 that there's a world of, of difference between a heart and a city wall, but there are similarities. Without faith, our heart is as hardened as the wall of Jericho, filled with the destructive disobedience that was in there. And just as the wall of Jericho fell, faith tears down the wall around our heart and cleanses as deeply as our sin goes. It was faith that tore down the wall and cleansed Rahab. This story of Joshua and Rahab is a direct line to the gospel of Jesus Christ. As you consider Jesus, 
Did you know that Joshua and Jesus have the same name in the Bible? Jesus' Hebrew name is Yeshua, which is Joshua. You consider that as you think of the story of Joshua, that Joshua comes after Moses and is the one who is able to bring God's people all the way home. That is an arrow, a picture for us of the one who is coming, Jesus, who will bring his people all the way home. That he would lay down his life for all who would believe in him. That he would take the penalty for the sins of any who would trust in him. And that he takes people like Rahab with him. He welcomes them. Let me tell you in closing a wonderful, hopeful truth about Rahab. Rahab lived in Israel, it tells us, for the rest of her life. You know what else we learn about Rahab? If you read Matthew chapter 1, Rahab is mentioned in, Rahab 1, in Matthew 1. Rahab, the prostitute, married in Israel. And she had children. And she had grandchildren. And from her line came David. And then eventually... Jesus. That is mercy and grace. That is mercy and grace. We're going to go into a time where we take the Lord's Supper together, and as we prepare for that, as we sing together, I want us to consider the grace of Jesus. There's none of us who deserve his grace. There's none of us who deserve his sacrifice. And yet, just as we sang earlier, he loves. He loves. And Paul tells us concerning the Lord's Supper, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That each and every time we take the bread and we take the cup, it's an opportunity for thankfulness and proclamation that we believe. We believe. We believe that Jesus died for our sins, that his body was broken for us, and we take the bread remembering that, and that his blood was shed, poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And as often as we do it, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we sing together, I encourage us to remember his mercy, remember his grace, and remember how that was displayed through sacrifice and through saving. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your word. Thank you for examples that you've given us through the scriptures to remind us that you are gracious and we are desperately in need of you. We need you. We need your mercy. 
We need your righteousness to be counted to us. We're undeserving. And yet you freely give. So help us, Lord, I pray. Even as we hold the bread and we hold the cup, help us to remember, even as you've commanded us to, that you died. Your body was broken for the forgiveness of our sins. Your blood was shed for us. And that for all who believe, all who trust in you, we will be counted as righteous and we will be called yours. Thank you for the hope that that is for us. In Christ's name, amen.